Welcome to episode 3 with adventure photographer Mark Solon. Welcome to the Art of Visuals podcast. My name is Prince McClinton, creative entrepreneur and founder of Art of Visuals. And each week we bring you inspiring people and messages to help you unlock your creativity, launch your business, travel the world, and create the life of your dreams. Thank you for spending time with me. Now let the good times begin. Mark is a managing partner at Techstars Ventures, where they've helped launch companies like Uber. Previously, he co-founded and was the managing partner of Highway 12 Ventures and has been investing and working with startups since 1995. Mark is an avid explorer. He's an art of visuals team photographer as well as one of our advisors. He's living his life to the fullest, and he's here to share a little piece with us today. Mark, how are you? Couldn't be better, Prince. Thanks for having me, man. Good to have you on the show. You bet. Uh... Why don't you give the audience a little background on yourself? Sure. Um, I live in Idaho. I've been here almost 20 years. Married a gal from Idaho. We met her on the East Coast. We were in a coffee shop. Uh, spent a decade living in Boston together. And when we had our, when we started planning our family, we decided to raise them here. My wife's a fourth generation Idahoan. So my kids are fifth generation Idahoans, which is really cool. And, um, I grew up in New York, so you know I bring my kids back to New York now, and they they walk around looking up the skyscrapers and like, how did you live here? Um, I'm I'm pretty jealous of the the upbringing that they've had because having having this as your backyard is is really a privilege. Absolutely. Um, I want to see a little background on how uh, you and I and Travis met and how you know what your introduction to art of visuals was like. You bet. Um, it was it was really through the startup community. It wasn't through photography. Um, I was just beginning to actually sort of uh, get serious about photography when we met, and we met through uh, the, the startup tech community. I've been working with startups and and uh, in the technology sector for going on twenty five years now. I ran a venture firm here in Idaho for a long time called Highway Twelve Ventures. And about five years ago, um, joined David Cohen, the founder of Techstars, as, uh, as one of the managing partners of Techstars. So um, it was through your work as a startup in this emerging startup community of Boise that, that we first met. And uh, it was the perfect intersection of um, my sort of obsession with outdoor adventure photography and what you were doing and the fact that what I thought you were doing as an entrepreneur was, was really rad. Uh, before we even get into photography, at what point did you become the adventurer? Because I don't even like calling you outdoorsman because you love the word adventure. So when did you become this adventurer? When did that start? Really when I moved to Idaho. Um, you know, growing up on the East Coast, uh, I never left. First time I was on a plane, I was 19 years old. So my my worldview growing up was New York City. And wherever my parents could drive a car to in a short period of time. Um, when I find, when I met Pam and started, you know, started coming out here on vacation time and spending a time in Idaho, it spoke to me in a way that nothing really had before. And our time was spent rafting the Payette River or rafting the Boise River in a tube or, um, I met lots of the, the friends that Pam grew up with here in Idaho and, and they were different than the people I grew up with. Um, slower pace, uh, uh, more time to visit, 
not as rushed, um, and a, and a genuine appreciation and love for the outdoors. And what's remarkable about this place we live in, Prince, is that the next town of equal or larger size than Boise is 300 miles away. And this is a small town, right? So what does that give, give us? In any direction that you drive outside of Boise, 15, 20 minutes, you're out, you're out of cell phone coverage for a long period of time. There are very few places left in the United States that you can live an urban lifestyle um, with good careers, uh, uh, good culture, yet have access to deep, remote wilderness um, in a very short period of time. And that spoke to me, and it just became... It, Idaho has shaped me as a person as much as anything I've done. It's interesting you say this all started when you moved to Idaho. It, it, to me, it sounds like you basically became a product of your environment. I did. And I think it it shows in your in your photography and your work. It is very Idaho. Like it feels authentic to Idaho. You know. Uh, well, it 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 affords me the ability to recharge my batteries on a regular basis. Because what I've discovered through the outdoors is that when I get away from all of this, my phone, my computer, technology, and I get into the wilderness, I'm renewed. And any day that I'm not in the outdoors with my feet touching the earth and dirt is a day that I feel I've lost. And I'm able to do that every day here. Our trail system here in Boise, the Ridge to River trail system, if you see my photography, you'll see that a good chunk of it is actually up up there. And that's church for me. That's temple. Um, and the ability to go have a spiritual experience every single day is renewing for me. And it's not for everybody, right? So, um, you know, having worked with startups for a really long time, has afforded me the ability to meet so many young people embarking on on their careers and their lives. And I, I, t I tell young people the same thing all the time. Find a place that recharges, where you can recharge your batteries on a regular basis. And that doesn't mean it has to be trail system and outdoors. That could be the opera. That could be um, professional sports. That could be the ocean. It could be anything. But if you live in a place where you can recharge your batteries on a regular basis, it makes you a better person and it makes you, um, it, it fills your buckets and it makes you better at your job. It makes you better, a better husband, father, mother, brother. But living here has done that for me. It's, it, it's been a way for me to, um, be the best Mark Solon I can be. And I think that has had a huge impact on how I interact with other people um, in all facets of my life. So it sounds like the outdoors uh, specifically allow you to really recharge your batteries, recharge your mindset. And so what do you think the top three takeaways of getting outside are? It's a chance for me to, it's the only time each day where I get to practice creative thought. Our lives are so rushed. There's a million distractions. We're multitasking all the time. When, when I'm in the mountains or on a river, 
which I can access so quickly here, it frees my mind to think about my family, think about my work. And I, don't, I never go out with a plan of something I want to think about. Just like I, when, I, when I put on my running shoes or, or get on my mountain bike, I never, I don't, when I leave my garage, I don't even know where I'm going. I turn left out of my driveway and I head towards the trail system and it just happens, which is really cool because I, uh, every, it's an adventure every time. I, I embrace, I embrace um, not knowing. Our lives are so structured that just letting things happen is, is a, um, is always a great experience for me. So I've incorporated that even into how I access our trails and, and our nature. Um, even when my son Cam and I go up and kayak, we'll just throw the kayaks on top of the, uh, on top of the car and head up north and we're like, what do you want to do today? Um, so I think it's one of the great elements of being in the wilderness because it's hard to stick to a plan in the wilderness um, things happen, weather changes, roads are blocked, um, uh, rivers change. Uh, and all of a sudden you're looking at a, a big hole in the river that wasn't there the last time you were there. And maybe you have to portage your boat around it, or maybe you have to get out and scout it or, um, and that's one of the things that I've come to love about the wilderness that, that at first is really scary. And that is how quickly things can change. If you're hurt or injured, all of a sudden there's no help. Um, and it, it, it teaches you that in, first of all, it teaches you to be flexible, which is great in all facets of your life, right? Things don't always go as planned. It's okay. So you embrace the, the unknown and the wilderness teaches you that. But I, I've certainly over, uh, since I've, since I've spent so much time in the outdoors or, or begun that I've been in crisis situations, things have gone bad in the wilderness and it teaches you to remain calm, to think clearly. And once you've been through that a couple of times, and it doesn't have to even be a big crisis. It could be as little as like, I remember I was in Moab a couple of years ago with my buddy Scott and we got lost and we, we left. It was June. It was the beginning of June. We, we left at six o'clock in the morning. We had 160 ounces of cold water and ice when we started our mountain bike ride. 100 ounces on our back, two 30-ounce bottles, plenty of water, right? We were rationing water at the end because we got lost. We went down a draw and we went three miles down and we hit a dead end. And we had to, we, we were off the trail, um, nobody around, over 90 degrees, approaching 100 and out of water. Not a fun not a fun experience. You know, you stay calm, you figure it out. Um, and sure enough, were, were we thirsty, hot and tired at the end of it? Yeah. But you, you, the more times you're placed in those situations, the more you understand the importance of remaining calm, thinking clearly and generally not freaking out. But I've certainly freaked out a few times. Yes. I've done that as well. The outdoors is cool because it's, uh, there's a lot of problem solving involved constantly just and you can't resist. It's beautiful. You're with nature. So there's, there's no resistance. You just figure out how to flow with it. How, where, where do we get in and just flow with it and get out to get to where we're going? 
just uh, uh, two weeks ago when, when Cam and I climbed the Grand, we were hiking out and exhausted, right? We were done with the whole thing. We were a mile from our car um, after two full days on the Grand and uh, ran to a bear, black bear, seven feet off the trail, sitting there eating berries. And your first, you know, your first your adrenaline spikes immediately, right? And the bear knew we were there well before we saw the bear, right? And the bear just looked at us and knew we were there and just slowly backed away. We didn't have bear spray. It wasn't part of our, you know, we were in a group of four. There's ne- By the way, there's never been a documented attack in North America of a bear attacking a human being in a group of four or more. So that stays in the back of your mind, right? Like we're in a big group. We're, we're fine. But you're presented with things like that in the wilderness all the time and you just learn to embrace it. It's part of the beauty of it. So with that said, you've already said some interesting uh, things this far. What was the scariest moment? I guess whether it's scary, whether it was just extreme adrenaline, like what was the most you know interesting, scary, extreme moment you've ever had thus far outdoors? There's been a few. Um, <laughs> um, I, just, I, I can, I can, off the top of my head, share share a few. Just two weeks ago, when it was the first time I had ever done some extreme climbing, and we were climbing the Upper Exum route on the Grand Teton, and I've been in climbing gyms and and things like that. And while for an experienced mountain climber, what I what I experienced is just normal. It was new for me. So I was on the, uh, the friction ridge, which is the sort of the known as the steepest, uh, pitch in the Exum route sum, uh, to the summit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had our guide and then me and then my son and you leapfrog your way up. And we spent a few days learning all the skills necessary to, to move as a team, but you get to friction ridge and you look up at it. And while, an experienced climber would look at it and just say, oh, that's, that's not much. It's a five, seven or a five, eight. Um, when you haven't done that before and you're looking at a thousand feet of exposure, it's pretty daunting. And I got about halfway up the friction ridge and I looked around and I couldn't see the next move. I, I didn't see, I didn't see anything to grab with this hand. I didn't see anything to grab with this hand. And I saw nothing for my foot to boost myself up. And I had that, you know, I had that, I wouldn't say it's a, a panic moment, but it was like, okay. And, and you take a look down and it's, it's pure exposure, right? And, um, you know, one thing I learned or, or, or Cameron and I learned over, the, over our, our training was, um, A, you never climb the rope, right? So you, an option is not to grab the rope and pull yourself up. And B, when you're in a situation like that, stop and reassess. You've probably taken a step or a move that was um, inappropriate back down and, and reassess and do it again. And that's exactly what I did is I lowered myself down a move or two, took a new look and sure enough found the ultimately found the right route. But man, for a couple of minutes there, you know, your heart's beat, you could feel your heart in your head and, and, uh, and that's why we do it. Right. Um, we had, we had all the safety in the world, um, or all, 
all the safety that we could in a, in a predict in, in a situation like that. And, um, I think I've just been in enough situations like, um, you know, remain calm and figure it out. Been flipped in rivers. Uh, I remember being in the, the black Canyon of the Gunnison and we had, we had just settled into the river. We were going through our very first rapid. So, you know, when you're, when you go on a river trip and you're in a raft, I was with a bunch of buddies and I think we had maybe been in the raft for two minutes. So you're still like figuring out where, you know, where am I going to sit? And my buddy John is, is rowing and we hit this rapid and I, I was sitting in the front of the boat and John never said, you know, rapid. So I'm facing backwards. I didn't even know. And we hit the first rapid and I go right over and I've got my fishing rod in one hand and this was years ago. I, I had a cigar in my mouth. I don't smoke cigars anymore. But, and I, I came up under the boat. I don't know how many times. I couldn't, I couldn't push my... We were going through a set of rapids. Um, and every time I surfaced, no matter what I did, I kept hitting the bottom of the boat. And that was... That, I mean, I was, running, I was nervous. Uh, and finally came out. The funny part was, after all that... Um, John grabbed me. He saw me come out the side of the boat. He grabbed me and two guys pulled me into the boat and I still had my fishing rod in my hand and my cigar in my mouth. <laughs> um, so I must have been, you know, incredibly tensed up. But uh, yeah, there's been, there's been a handful of situations like that. A couple of times getting, you know, backcountry skiing where you don't follow the right path and you wind up post-holing through snow and it's getting dark. Um, but the the... the the lesson through all of that is remain calm. Like you're, you know, the things you've learned to handle tough situations in the wilderness, as long as you remain calm, you figure it out. So it's almost like a, what would bond do type question to ask yourself when you're out in the wild. That's right. I've got a, I've got a few friends who are remarkable outdoorsmen. And I often think about, you know, what would they do in this yeah. situation? Absolutely. And it gets a lot more serious because now I'm doing, you know, my son is 17 now and we're doing a lot of this stuff together. And when you're young and single or young and no kids, you can toss caution to the wind and be reckless. Um, you only got yourself. And, you know, my, my wife has a great quote. She says, every adult male is a miracle. And it's true. Like we, we don't, when you're young, when you're a young male, you're not necessarily thinking straight all the time. Right. And you do, there's another great quote I've heard recently is, um, the only way to get, you can't get to old and experience without being young and dumb. It's like the yin and the yang, right. To anything. It's like, exactly. To become wise, you had to have you had done a lot of dumb stuff at some point. Perhaps my favorite quote, Prince, is um, uh, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. That's a, that's the truth. Um, but, but it all changes um, when you're out in the wilderness with your son, right? So it takes on a, a new level of seriousness. He's actually um, been through some really advanced backcountry uh, uh, survival and rescue courses more advanced than I have. Um, so the times lately when we've had to make decisions, um, it's really interesting that I'm now looking for my son for guidance 
uh, instead of the other way around. That's a really gratifying moment as a father. I bet. That's beautiful. With, uh, so you're up in the mountains since we're on the subject of climbing and you're with your son. Uh, is it Cameron or just Cam? So Cameron is Mark's son who he obviously, as you can hear, he adventures often with. Uh, they recently, you guys just got back from doing something that's been on your bucket list for a long time. Uh, you guys summited the Grand Teton Mountains. What was that like? Epic. They were really intense. You know, we if you live in this region and you set your eyes on the Grand Teton, I think it's the most beautiful mountain range in, in North America. Um, the only thing I've seen that that um, rivals it is the mountains of Patagonia. Um, the Sawtooths here in Idaho are another set of just iconic, uh, jaw-dropping, beautiful mountain range. And I first saw the Grand on a cross-country trip with a buddy 30-something years ago. And, and it's one of those features in, in America that just stays with you. And... I don't want to say it haunted me, but I've always wondered, like, gosh, what would it be like to climb that? Because if you look at it, you know, the, the top is a, is a pyramid. And, you know, snow-covered year-round. There's a, a glacier up there. Um, and I never thought in a million years that I'd wind up standing on top of it. And um, I just threw it out there to my son last year. I'm like, what do you think about climbing the Grand next year? And he's like, right on. Awesome. And, you know, I, I've, I've become friends with uh, Brian Smith, um, a, a guide in Jackson. We, uh, we, we did some backcountry skiing right across from the Grand this winter. We skinned up in, the, in, uh, in March, uh, one of the peaks just south of the Grand, and we got up to, I don't know, 11,500 feet, looking right across at the Grand. And the funny part is there were two people actually climbing Grand and skiing it that day. I was like, uh, we got to climb this, Ken. And we made plans with Brian, who's, who has summited the Grand, probably summits the Grand 10 times a year. Um, and we, you know, we took the, the classes with Brian that we had to, to learn the skills, and off we went. Life's short, Prince. Um, you don't get two spins around this globe. And like, as I said earlier, for me, uh, especially now being on the other side of 50, I've learned that you can be active and in the outdoors well into your 70s, if not the 80s. You know, um, I think Klaus Obermeier skied into it well into his 80s. But it's hard to do the really rigorous stuff past your mid-60s. Mountain climbing, you know, I've met a few guys who can do class four paddling in their, you know, late 60s, early 70s. but your body just starts changing in your late in your late 60s and you start losing a lot of strength and mobility and balance and i'm going to be 52 this year so you start doing the math and you realize that you're closer to the end than the beginning probably and it just creates a sense of urgency like wow there's still a lot i want to do and the things i want to do all revolve around outdoor adventure and that's where I want to spend my time so that sounds like it sounds like a really liberating place to be 
where you're at. Time's ticking, so let's live. Like, let's everything that I've ever wanted to do. Like, I'm just going to start doing this, and I'm going to start doing it now and sooner than later, rather than talking about it and thinking about it. Yeah, it's it's choices we make, right? I'm 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 incredibly lucky that I live in a place where so much of that stuff is accessible. I'm lucky that I'm married to a woman who enjoys it as much as I do. Pam is all in on, you know, we have an an 18 year old daughter and a 17 year old son. And we talk about very soon having a, a, a vehicle, our dream vehicle that could take us for days into the back country, um, and get lost. And I've got a lot of friends that, you know, it's, I've evolved to wanting to spend time with people who want to do those same things. So I've met people like, Peter Haran is a great example. He's a good friend of mine. I met Peter first on the board of a company. We were both on the board of directors of a company called Perch, uh, where we were an investor. And Peter uh, is an incredibly successful businessman. He's been the CEO of multiple large companies. He's an advisor to many media companies. And Peter lives in Portland, and he's a fanatical outdoorsman, uh, mountaineering, uh, hiking, backcountry skiing. And as I got to know Peter four or five years ago, it was, it, it, it became evident very quickly that all our interests were similar. And I just went on my first big adventure with Peter. We went down to Southern Utah for four or five days together and just went exploring uh, with a friend of his. And, um, you know, he's got a old VW camper that's got more gear crammed into every nook and cranny, whatever outdoor experience he comes upon, he's ready. And that to me, that's, that's living, right? So, um, it's certainly not a race, but you travel around a bit and you realize, wow, this is a big world. There's a lot to see. And Instagram maybe fuels that more than anything, right? Or, or now art of visuals, having people around the world, being able to share all of these amazing places. The inspiration is never ending. And, you know, I, one of the things I love about art of visuals, the new feature that you've put in with the ability to double click and, and dive in. Instagram is really limiting with regard to actually seeing what's in that picture. I love that I can now dive into a picture in art of visuals and say, whoa, I mean, like, it's almost like you're there. Um, so I think that if we didn't have the social sharing of our outdoor adventures, we wouldn't even know about all of these places. So the important thing now is how do we protect it, right? How do we make sure that just because um, people know that I like hanging out in McCall, Idaho, and it's, it's not crowded and it's quite beautiful how do we make sure it stays that way how do we do that stewardship right i mean the thought leaders in in the community look at um you know look at the the chris burkharts or the um, ben wylands or the jimmy chins um all of the heroes in outdoor adventure they preach it right they live it i mean i've been incredibly fortunate to that I, that I get to call Chris a friend and I've watched him in the wild. He lives it, man. I mean, um, 
And when our heroes are leading by example, and we have a responsibility, if you, if you care about the outdoors, you have a responsibility to pack it out, leave no trace. Absolutely. Just to take a step back, you had, you had said something about you and, and Pam. Sounds like you guys kind of have an idea of what your ultimate adventure rig would be. I'm curious. Yeah. Well, what? it's interesting because she wants a little bit of size and I want maneuverability. So um, we'll settle on something, um, but it's going to have to have four-wheel drive. It's going to have to be able to handle, you know, you've been on the washboard roads in Idaho, right? Uh, you know, we're not, mu- we're not big on creature comforts, uh, so we don't need anything very fancy. It's, it's all about utilitarian and the utility of a vehicle and the ability to stay in the backcountry for long periods of time. So solar will be important to rig it up with solar these days. Um, uh, maybe even a solar shower. That would be nice. Have a little hot water <laughs> in the backcountry. Um, stove, um, music. Music is such a big part of, of uh, a great outdoor adventure. It doesn't take much more than that. Make sure you have all the safety gear you need. Maybe like a forerunner. Maybe a little bit bigger than four. I really, my, my, my dream personally is, um, is probably a, a Defender 110 or 130. I love those old Land Rovers, man. They are, they're special. Yeah, they are. They're getting hard to find. Yeah, I You'll find one. I'll find one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because the only possession I really care about other than I mean, all my, the only possessions I care about are my gear, right? My mountain bike, my kayak, my backcountry skis, um, and my Jeep. Got a 1986 CJ7 that's been restored. And uh, man, that is a lot of fun. It is the ultimate Idaho summertime vehicle. Love it. So we, we, we've kind of gone through the adventure side of life we like you're an avid avid adventurer how did you get into photography like where does that come into play within all this so i never really thought that i had a creative bone in my body never played a musical instrument can't draw uh can't sing completely tone deaf and just thought i was one of those people that that wasn't a gift I was given, right? Like we all get different gifts. And about seven years ago, I took a sabbatical. I took a three-month sabbatical. And Pam and I and Cameron and Sophie put on some backpacks. And we spent uh, the day after school got out in 2010. We took off for Southeast Asia. And we came back the day before school started. So we spent three months in Southeast Asia and Africa And our kids at the time, I think Sophie was 12 and Cameron was 10. And we we wanted to make sure that they they grew up with the perspective of how fortunate they were. I mean, just being born white and in America, you've won the lottery. Like the amount of privilege you have just with those two things, you're going to have a pretty good life unless you screw it up. And coupled with the fact that I've had some success in business, um, we live in a safe neighborhood. Uh, we live in the North End of Boise, of course, uh, which is the best neighborhood in the world. 
it was really important to Pam and I that our kids grew up with some perspective that this is not normal, that the rest of the world doesn't live like this. And I've, I've been lucky. I've traveled a lot. And we decided to go to a handful of developing countries um, and do a bunch of service work. And it was hard because the kids were 10 and 12. And, and we were inspired by a friend of ours named Jane Martin, who had done it with her family. And, and we asked her, when, when are your kids ready for something like that? And her advice was interesting. Her advice was, when your kids are able to, to read a 300-page book, that's when they're ready. Because when you take a trip like that, there's a lot of downtime, right? And they need to be able to entertain themselves and not be crabby or, you know, uncomfortable or, and my son, my, my daughter was at that level. And my son who was 10 at the time was reading Harry Potter and we're like, okay, it's ready. So we planned, it took us a whole year to plan this trip. And we went to, um, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam in Southeast Asia. And we, we did a, not we, all the credit goes to Pam. Pam discovered a wonderful, uh, NGO called Globalware. And what we were looking for was an NGO where, number one, most of the money that we put towards the organization actually went to the service project, not some big overhead of a, of a large organization. We also wanted age-appropriate work. Our kids weren't 17 and 18. They couldn't sit and build a house all day like Habitat for Humanity. Um, and we also, wanted, we also wanted the experience not to be faith-based. Um, you know, we're spiritual, but we're not religious. And so when we looked for those three key ingredients over who we could go find some worthy service projects with, we discovered Globalware. What's really cool about Globalware, you should follow them, um, fantastic account. Just at Globalware? Yeah, it's glo- two words, Globe Aware. Globe Aware. Globe Aware. They, they, they run projects in about, I want to say about 25, maybe 30 developing countries around the world. And they have um, project leaders in each of those countries. And what's interesting is the project leader's job is to identify a worthy project that takes about a week. And you never know what you're going to do until you show up because they're constantly evaluating different projects. So in... In Cambodia, we worked in an orphan, orphanage for a week and we, we helped a family uh, build a well, a uh, family that previously had to walk three miles for fresh water. Um, in, in Laos, we helped um, a group of school teachers and children build a schoolroom to add on to their school. The government had approved 12th grade in Laos, but they didn't give them any money to build an additional classroom. So our donation to Globalware for that project in Laos was literally at building this, this uh, uh, schoolroom. And we were the only people working on the project were us, the students and the teachers and, and our project coordinator. And um, it was remarkable, you know, 105 degrees, humid, uh, middle of summer. And we lived in this, tiny little village in Laos working with his family. So on, on and on and on. And then we went on and did the same thing in Africa for a month. And, and I said to myself, getting back to your original question, 
of how I got into photography, I said, if, if we're going to take a trip like this, I should probably document it. And I really didn't know much about photography. So I went out and bought a, my first, I think it was a Canon Rebel. It was a great little, great little camera. And I took a few photography classes here in Boise, just like, you know, two or three, just so I had some basic understanding of how a camera worked. And what I've discovered was, A, wow, that's a lot of fun to take pictures in a strange setting. And so much of, so much of my photography on that trip was around the people we encountered. Um, and I found it challenging and rewarding to do street photography and to get people to react to my camera and, and, and not be threatening. It's, it's a, it's a scary thing to be in a country where you don't speak the language and try and take pictures of the beautiful people who live there. It's, it's, it's a real challenge. And I, I embrace the, the social aspect of, you know, pointing to my camera, smiling and learning that if you just show them the picture, it's almost like magic, right? You're talking about many people who've maybe never seen a camera before. We were in extremely remote locations. So I really embraced that. And, and we culminated the trip. We told the kids, you know, that look, you're leaving your friends for the little summer. We say, if we do this whole thing and you do these service projects, at the end of it, we'll go do a safari in Africa because we were finishing our volunteer work in Africa. And wow, having a camera in the Serengeti for a week was magical. So was that like the defining moment as far as the first group of photos you saw when you were like, wow. Like- well, the funny part was I came back and I, you know, I had thousands of pictures from this trip and right. started curating them and picked a bunch that I really liked and shared them with some friends. And it was like, and the feedback was wonderful. They're like, wow, you're really good at this. You should keep doing it. So that's how I got into it. I didn't, I was, I surprised, I really completely surprised myself that I, I, I didn't know. And so it took, you know, just started uh, consuming content on the web. There's so much available, right? Um, even six years ago when I started YouTube, Vimeo, pick your favorite medium. There's so much video content out there, how to become a good photographer. And then meeting Chris just it took it to a whole different level. And watching somebody at the top of his art has inspired me more than anything else with regard to photography. Cool. So we got a little, we got a little background and, on you and in your photography. I was going to get to Chris a little bit later on, but since you brought him up, I think it's a perfect time to, to jump into that. You're one of the very few people that personally knows Chris Bucard. And hey, how did you get introduced to, to Chris Bucard? How did, how did you guys link up? And then from there, how did the relationship grow? And you know, you're about to go on another trip with him and you bring in Cam, wish I was your son, but I'm not, <laughs> but you could adopt me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old enough to be your dad. Um, a friend introduced us. Uh, I wound up going on a photography workshop with Chris uh, to Iceland. We hit it off. Um, and the most remarkable thing about Chris is you already know him. He's exactly the same in person as he is on social media. 
What you see is what you get. There's no airs about him. He's as down to earth as they get. Um, his passion for his art. You know, I, I've been around some remarkable entrepreneurs in my career, people who've built massive companies. And Chris is no different than them. He has an obsession with his art. And art has manifested itself in so many ways. I, for, for decades, I've been around computer scientists who will debate with you. And, and I've, even though I don't write a line of code, I've come to appreciate that writing code is as much art as taking pictures or painting. Um, and I've met some of the best. And um, the common thread with all the great artists that I've met whether it's technology or photography, is a relentless obsession with their art. It's not a passing fancy. It's not doing it to make a lot of money. I mean, Chris lived in the back of his car right, or the back of his van, you know, sur shooting surf photographers as a 19-year-old with no idea what he was going to do. But he was obsessed with it and had to pursue it. Same as many of the other, you know, people like Isaac Saldana, the founder of Sandgrid, a massive company in, uh, uh, that, that's about to go public. It's waking up every day and going to sleep every night completely consumed with your art. And I'll, tell you, I'll share a story um, that I think really illustrates Chris. We had been on a, uh, a week-long workshop in Iceland in the, uh, in, in, in the Westfjords, in the, in the northern part of Iceland, where the sun never sets, it's the, the midnight sun. We were on a, a sailboat, the Aurora Arctica, which is a great account to follow, really exciting. And um, we got very little sleep, right? The sun's up, you're on a sailboat, sailboat's always moving. Like basically we napped at various periods for, for a week straight. Tons of hiking, amazing photography, super intense experience. And we got back to Isafjord in the West Fjords, and we had a day before our flight left Reykjavik on the, on the southwestern side of Iceland. And we had a flight booked, which is a half an hour flight from Reykjavik to, I'm sorry, from Isafjord to, to Reykjavik. And Chris had his, his car and, and um, Ryan, his assistant, was with him. And the, and the option was either fly or just take the highway straight down. And the highway straight down is five or six hours. And after a workshop of taking pictures for a week, thousands of pictures, right? Nonstop, no sleep, hiking, exhausted, just, just dying for a bed, right? Chris says, I got a better idea. Let's take the dirt roads. There's a bunch of spots that I've been, you know, researching on Google Earth that I want to hit. And we spent the next 24 hours taking pictures. Straight. Drove through the night. Dirt roads. Crazy experience. And Chris, there was one point where the weather turned bad. A storm came in. It was cold. It was raining. And I had to run back to the car just to put my hands on the heater, on, on the hot air, just to warm up my hands because I couldn't even hold the camera anymore. And Chris is out there fucking taking pictures in this storm 
not because he had to. Like he'd already, Chris has been to Iceland 30 times, but, but because he's obsessed with it. And it was in that moment, I was like, I get it. This is how, this is why greatness happens. When you're willing to suffer for your art, right? And since that, since that 24-hour experience, it's changed my perspective on photography in the wilderness because I'm now willing to suffer to get a great photograph and a great image. I'm willing to go hungry or tired or cold because I know that there's a chance that I'm going to capture an image that's unique and special. And that's made all the difference. Absolutely. I couldn't, that was a really, really cool story. I've never, I only know what I hear about Chris Bucard. So it's rare to hear a firsthand story uh, about the man, the myth, the legend, right? So that's really, that's just, that's awesome. What's one piece of advice that you learn personally from, and it may be, maybe it's one, two, three, but uh, you know, what's a piece of advice that you learn from being out with Chris Bucard on, on these excursions? Um, more than anything, it's don't try and be somebody else. It's be yourself. And if you ask Chris, there's thousands of photographers who are more, who are better technical photographers. I mean, look at any, look at your Instagram stream, right? Look at your AOV stream. Look at the quality of some of those photographs. They're off the charts, you know, crystal clear, perfect colors. You know, if you hung it on a, in an art gallery and it was 60 inches wide, you could stare at it for hours. But what I learned from Chris is in, t- in today's environment, um, there's so much incredible photography, but there's not a lot of storytelling going on. And if you really think about what Chris does better than anybody I know, it's share stories, right? Read his captions and you feel like you're there with him in the moment. And if I've adopted anything with the way I share my art, it's to try and get people who look at my photography. Cause I, I don't even think I'm an average photographer. I look at other people's work. I'm like, Oh, how did he do that? You know, like, uh, Daniel Corden or, 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 um, you know, there, there's so many, I, I, I follow on, on AOV. I look at these pictures. I'm like, how did they do that? But I think, I think the storytelling is missing, right? Like, it, we're so used to just this swipe, 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 right? Swipe like, swipe like, or, but I'm always drawn to the captions when people are sharing their stories or, or how they talk to me about it. When I, when I meet a great photographer, like I want to hear the story behind the photo. How'd you find it? What was it like? How difficult was it to capture that? And I think that was what makes Chris special is he'll tell you, you know, how he suffered to get that photograph or, you know, the, if it, if he's in a place where perhaps nobody will ever have the means to go see, it's like you're there with him. Um, 
So that's what I true. That's the biggest takeaway I've taken that I've incorporated into my work is try. If somebody's going to take the time to look at one of my photographs and spend more than a swipe on it, then I want them to at least be there with me. Right. Well, that's beautiful. I, uh, I think the story, the storytelling aspect is so, so important. And, uh, I was talking to some of the other artists on the podcast, uh, like Luke and, and, and Chris, the tech creative. And, uh, we were talking about how I feel like we live in a, a time right now, especially with social media, like photography and everything's just kind of blown up. Uh, media consumption in general is blown up and on both sides, people consuming it and people creating it. Um, and, now I feel like a lot of the content being created is very uh, meaningless. Doesn't mean it's not beautiful. Doesn't mean it's not a great picture. Uh, but there's nothing more to it other than taking a photo for the sake of taking a photo and, and showing everyone on Instagram the image. But there's really nothing else behind it. Uh, so with that said, do you have a uh, is there a vision for your art? Is there a vision for what you're what you're doing and what you're creating? Yeah. Is there a message behind it? Sure. More more than anything, over the last year or two, I've had a lot of people in my, um, I've had a lot of people in the tech community tell me that my photography has inspired them to spend more time outdoors. And specifically around this community of people who work in tech, because mostly everyone sits in front of a screen all day. And I think societally we are losing our touch with the outdoors. I I really believe that there's a plague of outdoor deficiency syndrome among us in our society. That if, 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 if I make no greater contribution to the tech community than to inspire some people to spend some more out, more time outdoors, then I feel that's actually a pretty significant contribution because I know every time I bring somebody from a big city to Idaho for the first time and I put them in the Jeep and I drive up highway 55, their minds are blown and they can't wait to come back. Um, and it's incredibly gratifying to bring, to, to expose somebody to this in the same way that I was exposed to it by my, by my wife, right? I mean, I grew up in a big city. I wasn't exposed to it in the first half of my life. So, so two ways to answer your question. One is that the purpose of my work right now, while I still have a career in technology, is to inspire as many people as I can in that community to spend more time outdoors, there's one more chapter to my career. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I've got some stories to tell. Um, and I'd like to do it through photography and film. Um, there's a few really special stories that, that I'd love to share and that'll evolve over time. Uh, but I think right now photography really scratches that itch for me, especially outdoor adventure photography. And, um, feel lucky to be able to do it beautiful parting words i think we're just about there on time 
So what advice do you want to leave? And I'll leave this open-ended. What do you want to leave the community with? I guess, you know, there's a lot of people out there trying to just figure it out, you know, trying to figure out how to balance work and their passions, figuring out how to make their passions fit into their life to where they can do it full time and all these different things. You've had a lot of success in business and life and family relationships, the outdoors. You know, you seem to have done just a a really good job for yourself all the way around. And uh, yeah, what advice, you know, you're sitting with a room full of cams, 3,000 cams sitting in a room. What are you leaving them with? Um, the advice would be that people often ask me, what would you do? And the answer is, I don't know what I would do if I were you. Only you know what to do. And I think the what to do is find the joy, right? I don't do photography for any other reason than it brings me immense joy. There's a, there's a great line. Um, when you have figured out what in life makes you forget to eat and poop, you've found your thing to do. And for me, whether I have a camera in my hand or I'm pouring through Lightroom at my work trying to figure out which piece to share tomorrow or this coming... I actually I try and spend an hour or so on the weekend figuring out what five pictures I'll share during the week. It's too, too busy. And I, I do. I can sit for hours and hours and hours and forget to eat and forget everything else that's going on around me. And I'm, I'm lost in it and it brings me great joy. And I... You know, if I'm sitting in front of a room of, of, of a bunch of young people, that's what I'm telling them is, you know, whether it's your career or how you spend your time, find your, find your joy. And as long as it's bringing you, it, it's hard to find joy in this world, right? It's, it's more complicated and harder than ever before. It's, it, it's not as a simple a world as it was just a short time ago. And you know, there's so much noise out there and there's so much negativity in some of the social media streams that, you know, find that way to unplug from all of that. And for me, that's, as I said earlier, Prince, that's the outdoors. It's incredibly intoxicating and, and I get to recharge my batteries on a, on a daily basis. So more than anything else, figure that out and the rest becomes easier. Thank you for listening. Please share the Art of Visuals podcast with your friends and make sure to hit that subscribe button. Sharing is caring. You can follow Art of Visuals on Instagram at Art of Visuals or sign up for the Art of Visuals newsletter on artofvisuals.com. Join us next episode for more, but until then, let's continue to visually inspire the world together.